very, very early on in my career, I would actually accidentally became the lead maintainer of an open source project. Uh, <laughs> so I know what it's like to be on the other side of the table and be running an active project and feel overwhelmed by all the things that people are asking of you. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your ideas to the next level. We trust Linode because they keep it fast and they keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Next week on the pod, our very own Yana Dogan does a deep dive on databases. Think of it like a director's cut for her viral medium post, Things I Wished More Developers Knew About Databases. Subscribe to be notified when it drops at changelog.com slash go time or in your podcast directory of choice. Just search for Go Time. You'll find us. Right now, it's Denise Yu from GitHub. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Go Time. Once again, thank you very much for those of you who listen to the show regularly, and a special shout out to our live listeners and those that engage with us on the Go for Slack channel on a regular basis. If you also want to join the fun, um, uh, do check out gotime.fm for all the details. Again, thank you so much. You all make this recording every week uh, worthwhile, and you make it more fun. So, I'm Johnny Borsico. I will be your co-host for today. Joining me also as co-host is uh, John Calhoun. Say hello, Mr. Calhoun. Hey, Johnny. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm feeling excited because uh, today we have special guest, Denise Yu. So allow me to tell you briefly about Denise. She's an active member of the Go community, uh, especially in the Toronto, Canada region. You might have come across her talks uh, at uh, GoCon. Some she's also spoken at uh, DevOps Toronto, uh, various meetups, and uh, she's uh, kind of making her name for herself um, in part because of the way she sort of gives back to the community. Something that, uh, as you all know, is near and dear to my heart. And uh, some of us have even participated in her drawing lessons that she teaches online, which is kind of fun. We'll definitely get into that. I want to I know more about that because I, don't, I, don't, I can't draw anything. <laughs> so we're going to get into that. So she calls herself a developer and cat enthusiast. Welcome to the show, Denise. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. And this is my first time doing a live stream so or a live Ooh. podcast recording, rather. So uh, definitely not nervous at all. <laughs> you'll do just fine you'll do just fine so i've only briefly sort of um, given folks for an introduction as to who you are but why i really wanted to have you on the show is because i, I think a lot of uh, the things you do that are sort of valuable uh, to the community i want sort of more folks more broadly to be aware of of those things and of you because you know i think you're doing some awesome things which benefits a lot of us whether we realize it or not and i kind of wanted to have you on a show and and especially you know it seems to me the kind of role you do even like with your day job at github uh, is all about sort of uh, taking care of people taking care of community is is so it, it kind of lines up quite well with what we're going to get into 
into uh, during the show today. But please uh, give us a little more about yourself. What don't we know about you that you want us to know? I guess we can start with what I currently do. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm currently a software engineer at GitHub. Um, I actually started about eight weeks ago, <laughs> right when mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere started going to lockdown. I am actually at my parents' place right now. Um, my intention was to visit my parents for a couple of weeks, like one week, maybe two. And now we're starting week eight. So it's been an interesting experience living at your parents' house at age 30. Mm. But (laughs) it's good to stay put, especially now. And it's been a good time or a good chance to spend more time with my family, which is actually something I realized I hadn't been home for quite a while Mm -hmm. um, because of immigration reasons and just life reasons. Yeah. So I work at GitHub. The team that I joined is called the Community and Safety Team. And this is a team that has a mission that I'm really, really excited about. I interviewed specifically for this team and was like, no, I just want that one job. (laughs) I don't want any other roles. (laughs) I found out about this team last year when I was at a conference called Write Speak Code out in San Francisco. And at that time, Lexi Galantino, who's now one of my teammates, was at the conference speaking about her team um, and basically talking about the ways that GitHub builds tools Um, basically combines policy solutions and engineering solutions to encourage people to, you know, become part of constructive and positive communities and to discourage negative, unproductive behaviors that erode things like trust in the community, collaboration in communities, uh, and that sort of thing. So I was very excited about the mission. I've been doing open source software for a number of years, very, very early on in my career, I would actually accidentally became the lead maintainer of an open source project. Uh, <laughs> so I know what it's like to be on the other side of the table and be running an active project and feel overwhelmed by all the things that people are asking of you. Mm. So I was very excited about the role, super excited to get the offer. So I started eight weeks ago and it's been fantastic so far. I'm having a lot of fun. You know, this is my first time back in app development, actually, in a number of years. I was working on kind of infrastructure tools for the last few years with Pivotal. Mm -hmm. So getting back into Ruby on Rails dev actually uh, has been... Rails has changed a lot in four years. The last time I wrote Rails was over four years ago. And I was like, oh, this thing that I struggled with four years ago is just a solved problem now, which is kind Mm -hmm. of nice. Awesome. Awesome. So... I'm interested in sort of uh, uh, the journey that you've taken within sort of the 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 Go community. Like, like what brought you to Go? Like, what keeps you in in the Go community? Yeah, so I started writing Go at work last year, um, and I actually haven't written Go for that much time. When I worked at Pivotal, a bunch of teams had basically like adapter code that was in Go, uh, so I didn't get super deep into Go my first two years there, um, mostly. My Go code was about taking YAML that's in this shape and then marshalling it into a data structure and putting it, like changing it into a slightly different shape, which is kind of like what app developers do. You get like some input, change it around a little bit and then like output it to -hmm. someone else. So last year I rolled onto a team that was working on an open source product called Concourse, um, Concourse CI. And Concourse is written 100% in Go. I think that was a pretty deliberate decision early on because Concourse, first of all, needs to be highly performant. It's a CI CD system. It's run on containers. A lot of the container APIs are written in Go, uh, which is fantastic. Like RunC, for example, has a Go client. So I started learning a little more about Go and trying to get more into the weeds of the language. And I definitely am still very far from being able to call myself a Go expert. 
But some of the things that I really like about Go is, believe it or not, I was actually thinking about this the other day. Learning Go conventions and the Go style of coding actually made me a better developer in other languages. And I feel like Mm. I I go through this every time I learn a new language. Like learning JavaScript made me better at Ruby. And now I feel like learning Go made me better at both JavaScript and Ruby. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll tell you why. Like the reason why is because I love that Go is so opinionated. Like if you want to write a conditional, there's only one way to do it. So if you read a conditional someone else's code, it looks the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like that, like that, that low level stuff. There's no reason to want to be creative with that unless you're playing code golf or something, I guess. But <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> which I guess you can write your own macros and things if you want to do that. But I really like that when you're reading Go code, all you have to learn is the domain. Mm-hmm. You don't need to learn a whole different set of conventions. This is something that I've struggled with, with reading Ruby and JavaScript code for many, many years, because at pretty much every job I've had that's been in Ruby or JavaScript, we've always had a debate about what style guide we want to use. <laughs> and this is always just such a time sink because it doesn't matter, right? Like ultimately you should just pick one and introduce some automation that enforces it. Like mm-hmm. it is not a good use of developer energy. I have this idea, like I think every team has a certain amount of almost like a friction budget. You know, like there, there's mm-hmm. a healthy amount of disagreement that every team can go through where you still feel good about what you've done at the end of the day. Or maybe, you know, maybe some teams have a higher friction budget than other teams, depending on, I guess, how gelled you are. But mm-hmm. it's not a good use of that friction budget to argue about things like syntax and styling. Right. You should spend that energy arguing about bigger things like, are we actually serving our users? Are we actually architecting our systems in the right way? Or are we thinking about scale? You know, like the more interesting, like open-ended questions, not like, oh, how many lines do you want your conditional to have? Like that, that's not a good debate to have. Um, so that's the first reason. But the second reason I really like Go is because I actually think I spent a lot of time thinking about the structure of functions. And I really love that Go, by and large, if you want to know what the happy path, like the intended return value of a function is, you look at the bottom the last line is your happy path. And many, many Go testing libraries, or not the testing libraries themselves, but the way that people write tests kind of reinforce this, uh, like this standard. So I I sort of think about like when I make a method call, uh, the execution kind of ping pongs through kind of like a pinball machine. You know, like when you play pinball, the ball goes (laughs) to the top and it, it goes down all the flippers. And I kind of like, I visualize myself like flippering away the error cases <laughs> or the edge cases so that at the bottom, all that's left is the the straight path. Mm-hmm. So with that sort of mental image, I started thinking more about how, you know, like the Ruby code and the JavaScript code and the code in other languages that I've struggled to read the most has always been code that has a lot of cyclomatic complexity, you know, like a lot of conditionals, a lot of nested statements, a lot of visual misdirection. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the happy path will be nested inside three layers of of ifs and it's like well how Mm -hmm. was i supposed to know that right all right all right but i think go strongly discourages that and strongly encourages a kind of linear you know logic flow Mm -hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned the happy path because as far as i can tell there's nothing specific about go that like the language itself that enforces that it's just kind of the convention everybody's adopted and i don't know if it's the fact that all the developers who are working on it were working on complicated enough problems that they're like we need some sort of sanity check here or what, but, you know, all these other languages, there's definitely no reason why they couldn't do it. And I remember, like, when I first started programming, I think it was Java is what I saw it in, and there were people who, like, made the argument that if you ever have an if statement, there should be an else statement. And, like, in Go, it's, like, the exact opposite (laughs) argument. It's, like, Mm -hmm. if you can avoid that else statement, go ahead and avoid it. Just return or do whatever you can and get everything back, you know, so that it's not indented any farther. So it's interesting to see those differences. 
It's also interesting to hear you talk about it this way, Denise, because we've had Dave Cheney on, on the podcast before. Uh, last time we had him, uh, he basically had just uh, published the, the, the Zen of Go uh, website, which is basically uh, kind of fell out of a talk he gave, uh, I believe it was uh, Go for Quan Israel or something like that. But uh, basically he was uh, making a case for uh, sort of uh, not really sort of treating like idiomatic go what we consider idiomatic go sort of a, as gospel you know and, and i could definitely understand where it's coming from at the same time a part of me was like okay uh yes absolutely like don't let sort of uh, the idioms right of the community be, sort of become a barrier right or some sort of a gauge as to whether you're a good go developer or not so good or whatever it is right don't don't use it as a barrier but i think in a lot of cases it also helps to instruct and sort of guide it provides sort of this guardrail right for, for folks to kind of have an idea okay i know that most i, I could write go right um like java i call i call that gava <laughs> i could write go like you know ruby i call that gooby you could write it right uh, to look and, and feel like uh, like other languages that you're you're perhaps come coming from or that you're you're more comfortable with but that would look a little weird right to the you know as as a go project that would look a little weird within the ecosystem of other go projects right so when i read that code if it didn't kind of look like other Go projects, even though syntactically it, it could be compilable and there would be nothing wrong with it, but it would still feel wrong. Perhaps that's too strong a word, but it, it would simply be not idiomatic, right? I'm wondering sort of how you see, right, the idioms of the community. Do they help hinder? Do they help you in your learning? Do you sometimes find yourself deviating? How do you treat what we generally refer to as idiomatic Go? Personally, I try to follow idioms as much as possible, but I also acknowledge that I've been programming for a couple of years now. And for me, learning, you know, learning a new language's idioms is not such an, a high barrier um, anymore because I've done it for a bunch of other languages by now. The one thing I think sort of makes onboarding a little easier is that Go ships with tools that in a lot of times like enforces these idioms, like Go format, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you consider spacing and indentation part of a language's idioms, but <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But if you just run Go format, you know, it, it's not even something you even need to think about. Right. On the point of people writing Go like other languages, though. So when I worked at Pivotal and bless, you know, <laughs> bless their hearts. Like when I started out, I did not know what Go conventions were. And I just kind of copied the pattern that was in front of me, which, by the way, is like people always copy the pattern in front of them. So I think that <laughs> fact doesn't get you know, leveraged enough as a teaching tool. So we can, you know, do a better job of putting the right patterns in front of people early on in their learning journey with a new language or new tool. I think that's a very powerful lever to pull on. But when I was at Pivotal, we very, very much wrote Go as if it was Ruby. <laughs> um, we, I think uh, we even used tests like BDDs or behavior-driven testing suites. Mm -hmm. We use a test runner and an assertion library um, called Ginkgo and Gomega, which like I don't know if if you guys have come across that before. Yep, I'm familiar with them. Yep, yep. yep. Yeah, I think <laughs> <laughs> those libraries are. I've since learned after you know after talking to people who are outside of the Pivotal Go community that those two libraries are quite contentious out in the wild <laughs> because they ease the developer who knows Ruby and R spec into learning Go, right. but you don't learn you know, the go way along the way. You're just sort of like insisting on following the Ruby way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was a source of like, not tension, but just like a source of frustration, I think for developers that I worked with at Pivotal was Ginkgo has a before hook and a just before hook. 
<laughs> and the idea of say you have like a file that's for the whole package or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe that package has methods that each needs set up to be a little bit differently. So if you have your global before, where you can nest context and within each context, you can run a just before <laughs> and then add some different flavor just for each context, which if you don't know about the existence of a just before and you go to the top of the file and you're like, okay, that's weird. My before <laughs> is running. What's this extra side effect? You know, mm-hmm. that's swooping in right before this test executes. <laughs> and that would be the just before hook, which I, I don't want to talk about how many hours I've spent debugging that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, right? It's, it's like there's a feature or an approach that uh, sort of these libraries sort of bring that uh, if you don't know what the team's convention for using these things are, right, it, it could easily bite. It. Whereby, like, I'll admit, when I first saw those libraries, I was like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I came, you know, the language I was using the most right before Go was Ruby, right? So when I saw these things, I'm like, hey, yeah, I can do RSpec style development in Go. How cool is that? I saw it as like really like an on-ramp, right, into, in, into Go development. And the more I learned about sort of go and and the standard library what you can do just without any additional sort of a, a stuff or any additional packages and things the more i started to sort of see the advantage of using the standard library and and the things that it comes with you know you can do out of the box i sort of stepped off the the whole bdd uh, um, train and but i started using uh, assertion libraries like testify has been and remains one of my favorites like before i bring in a testify am i still sort of a, a I'll, I'll try things that would just plain standard library just with the testing package and a lot of times it just works just fine right i might add the cmp package i think from the google folks you know just to do a comparison and diffs and stuff, you know, for test output. But really, like between the standard library and that package, it offers the vast majority of what I need uh, on most projects, right? Again, I'm not saying that, you know, if somebody wants to use those packages or they make life easier or transitioning from a def- from a different language that has an assertion library, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I'm saying that like always tell folks like, hey, try the standard library first and then see what you need, right? It's almost like don't start with all the things, right? Incrementally add things as you need them, right? It's an interesting, like you, I, I saw Go as sort of a, um, it sort of made me a better sort of a, um, engineer overall because it, it sort of forced me to to sort of take the simplest path and then only really bringing in things that I needed to when I needed to, right? So interesting how that works, but I'm not fighting it. I agree with you, Johnny. If you need to try those things, it definitely makes sense. It's kind of like when you're getting in the pool, you don't have to just cannonball in the deep end. You can you know, ease your way in gradually. And if using those tools helps you, that's fine. But one of the side effects to that is, is like Denise said, if you have a big company with a big project and they never really move off of those or if they sort of stick with it, it's almost like they're using Go, but they're not really using it like the way everybody else is or like they're not necessarily getting the full benefits that could be there. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing a terrible thing or anything, but it is potentially, you know, affecting their experience with it. So it's kind of, uh, you know, a a double-sided blade where you got to choose when to maybe try something else or see if that makes sense and and when it's not really a good learning tool. Yeah, and the last time I worked on a Pivotal on the Concourse team, uh, so Concourse is different from the other projects because it is fully open source facing. Um, So anyone can send a PR to Concourse. So towards the end of my time there, we actually were experimenting with like not using Ginkgo and GoMega anymore because that does represent uh, friction for new contributors um, because like Pivotal is probably one of a handful of companies that use those two tools you know, aggressively. 
But if you've never seen that before and you're like, oh, I want to just, sub- you know, submit this little bug fix. And then you go look at the 800 line test file. And you're like, oh, God, <laughs> <laughs> I got to add a test into this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it's much better to just you know choose the actively like like the, the most popular path, which is just just use go test or something more lightweight. You can see this in other languages, too. Like even in Ruby, so many people use RSpec that while there are other you know great ways to test there. You almost have to use RSpec because everybody's used to it and they're familiar with it. And if you want your project to be open source, that's kind of the mm-hmm. path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Hi, everyone. Panelist John Calhoun here. As many of you know, when I'm not recording GoTime episodes, I create programming courses. Some of these are paid, and that keeps the lights on at my house. So thank you to anyone who has purchased one of those. But I also offer free courses. One of those free courses is Gopher Sizes. It's a series of 20 Go programming exercises, and in each exercise, we build something new or improve upon something we built in a previous exercise. Each exercise is designed to teach you something unique about Go, and they're also a lot of fun. So if you want to check it out, you can do that at gophersizes.com slash go time. That's G-O-P-H-E-R-C-I-S-E-S dot com slash go time. Or you can think of it as gopher plus exercises mashed together into one word because that's where it came from. I want to shift a little bit into the... Actually, you spoke at GoCon. Was that, was that two years ago or three years ago now? Actually, it was about last year. It was <laughs> it was this time, wow. yeah. Like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I know the last two months, I felt like a year each. Literally, like, ever since the lockdown, the days have started sort of melding into each other for me. And now I feel like, you know, like a week that goes by feels like a month. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. But... You spoke at GoCon, and the following year, you joined the organizing team, right? Yes. Yep. This past year, I was meant... To, well, I guess I still am on the organizing team. <laughs> <laughs> Just because the conference didn't happen doesn't mean I'm not an organizer. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so you, you joined the organizing team, and uh, yeah, and pretty much y- y'all had everything just set up and ready to go. You were reaching out to speakers and putting the finishing touches on things. And then obviously the, the whole um, COVID-19 thing happened and, and now basically having to cancel the conference this year. Uh, I'm sort of curious. So, well, first of all, I'm hoping that you and the organizing team are going to bring the conference back next year. I'm sure it's, you know, when exactly that that's TBD, but hopefully that's something that's going to come back. I'm wondering now that you've been part of an organizing, so the organizing side of the conference, like what have you learned from from that experience? Like I'm asking purely from from somebody who organizes events and, and everybody has a little something a little different. So, you know, specifically within the, within the context of the Go community, what have you learned about sort of organizing this conference? I learned a lot. I just didn't realize how many moving pieces there are to event production. Cause I've also only done community, you know, like one-off events, uh, mm-hmm. meetups and that sort of thing. Meetups and conferences are not the same thing with a meetup. <laughs> you know, you get one venue host, you maybe get a couple hundred dollars for pizza and you just throw an event on meetup. And that's pretty much it. Um, like all the infrastructure is already there, but for a conference, you gotta like, it took us two months probably to find a venue because we were aiming for 350 people. And turns out that's a very awkward size for an event, for venues. Mm. Venues are either small, they're either sub 100 or they're over 500. There's not that much in the middle. Mm. And we also wanted to balance things like closest to public transit, 
would it be in a neighborhood that was relatively interesting? Could people go for a walk, go outside if they wanted to? You know, we were trying not to do a hotel ballroom um, because Toronto has a lot of interesting buildings. And I think we were hoping to, you know, find a venue that supported, I don't know, like something that wasn't like a giant international hotel chain. Of course, like we would need to get a hotel anyway to put our speakers in. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like you know, we couldn't avoid giving money to hotels. Right. Um, <laughs> so the venue that we ultimately found was the Isabel Bader Theater, which is part of the University of Toronto. I actually learned about the theater because they do all sorts of events there. And my partner and I went there because one of our friends was performing in her community orchestra there. And when we turned up for the concert, we were like, wow, this is such a great venue. The seats are so comfy. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a conference here? So as a conference time approach, we were looking at lots and lots of different venues. It's difficult also to find a venue that will give you flexibility over catering. So we didn't need like a hundred percent flexibility. You know, we didn't want to like bring in a hundred percent of our own or anything. We just wanted something that was at reasonable cost. So a lot of these venues are geared towards weddings. So the second you say large event or conference, they're like, <laughs> let me tell you about our $99 per head like <laughs> banquet package. And we're like, we don't really need $99 a head. Like we want this to be affordable for everyone that's coming. So that's just like the logistical side of it. In terms of what else? There, there's This was a couple months ago and I feel like my brain has kind of forgotten a lot of things in the last two months of just general <laughs> pandemic uh, did you work in a program yeah. as well like uh, uh like trying to figure out what kind of talk and and f- from whom and any, all these things yeah so we kind of divided and conquered in terms of what each person wanted to work on because we had an org team of six or seven people so my main area of responsibility was the program because i speak at a lot of conferences i you know could deeply empathize with people especially i feel like i'm always empathizing with the first time submitter or with the person mm-hmm. who's kind of new to the community who doesn't feel 100% confident in you know, casting their net out there. Mm-hmm. So we went through several rounds of copywriting for the actual CFP language. Mm. And I spied a lot on other CFPs that were open at the time. Special shout out to the DevOps Toronto team. Uh, I think they did a really, really good job of spelling out, like, this is the type of assistance we can give you if you're a new speaker. Here's mm-hmm. who we want to hear about. Um, here are things you shouldn't be worried about. Like, don't worry about, you know, if your talk is not technical enough, don't worry if, you know, you feel like it's too introductory. Like we think we anticipate a very, very diverse audience in terms of experience level. So Mm -hmm. there is room for every type of talk. One thing that we didn't fully align on and was kind of an ongoing conversation was who was the intended audience for this conference? Because Canada doesn't have another Go conference. This is the only Go conference in Canada, certainly the only one in Ontario, Mm -hmm. certainly the only one in the greater Toronto area. So we kind of went back and forth on whether we wanted to prioritize local representation because we wanted to use this as a chance to create some local, you know, voices, like leaders in the Go community. Mm -hmm. But if we did that, we also wanted to make sure that whoever we were giving a platform to, we want that a diverse speaker lineup that, you know, even if it doesn't represent the current Go community, because I know that in the last community survey, I think only like between five and 10% of Go developers self-identified as women, I think. Um, it was a pretty low number. Mm. And our gender balance was much higher in terms of non-men to men was much, much higher than that. Mm. So I was really happy with that. Like out of a lineup of, I think, 17 speakers, I think we had five or six non-men 
speakers. Nice. Uh, which, yeah, it was really, it was hard to find <laughs> those people. <laughs> we didn't do as much community outreach as I would have liked to. We just kind of ran out of time on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did spend a long time going through the CFP. Oh, actually, I wrote an application for it. <laughs> I was out of work <laughs> at the time, and I didn't like how paper, like, no offense to if anyone from Paper Calls listening to this, but um, I didn't like Paper Calls' built-in um, mechanism for sorting through submissions. Because mm-hmm. my requirements were, I want multiple reviewers, and Paper Call caps you at five people, but we have, I was like, well, we have seven people, and possibly more, like, if we decide to bring on guest reviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want an unlimited number of reviewers. I want the author, the organization, and identifying details to be not shown by default. Um, and I also want the ability to edit the content of the abstract in case someone, you know, said, oh, by the way, I'm blah, 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 and I work for blah, 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 just in the abstract itself. Right. Um, paper call won't do that for you. Paper call just hides a name and email or something like that. Um, so I actually built a app in in Node.js from the ground up. <laughs> you <laughs> export all your JSON from paper call and you just put it into the app and it displays every single talk as its own, like a submission form. Mm-hmm. And just like, I totally slimed the login process. I put it on Heroku and I was thinking I basically had a one person hackathon for four days to like crank this out. And the last night I was like, Oh, authentication. Like I really, really don't want to think about OAuth right now. Like I really don't want to build a, you know, Twitter login or something like that. So what I did was I just put a map of keys and values into the Heroku app environment. (laughs) And that was people's usernames and passwords. (laughs) Okay, as an SRE, you've been officially slapped in the wrist. <laughs> wow. I know, but, so bad. <laughs> but I mean, but hey, you know, it, it is, you know, you shipped it. Hey, that, there's, yeah. there's something to be said for that, right? And it worked. I imagine it worked for what you were looking for. Yeah, exactly. And as soon as the app, the um, review process was done, I spun down the app. <laughs> okay. I think. I should check on that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I can totally sort of feel you with regards to sort of having a diverse speaker pool. It is folks just don't know how hard that process is um, for a number of reasons. You know, I've, I've come across uh, folks who are very talented, super smart, that don't fit the typical demographic, right? And, and you say, hey, like, you come come give this talk and you, you'll, you'll do great. But they have so much self-doubt, right? Like, oh, I don't, I don't think I can do this. I'm like, no, like, believe me, like, you can do, like, it's, it's, it takes so much sort of a convincing. And obviously, I think our industry is, is to blame for that, right? Like, for, for so long, we weren't really paying attention to any of that. But now that we are, it's not something that's going to change overnight, right? And that's what I usually try to, to tell for, like, hey, like this, this work that you're trying to do is hard. Know that it's hard because it's not going to change overnight, right? It's not like all of a sudden when we start paying attention to the problem, you're going to have all these great speakers, you know, that, that are uh, sort of a, don't fit the typical sort of a, a, um, demographic. Just, these people are just going to come out of the woodworks. No, you're going to have to do a lot of outreach. You're going to have to find them, convince them, and, and really make it, you know, sort of be more welcoming for for these folks to sort of step out and and really take on these roles. So, you know, I definitely applaud you for 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 doing that work, and and I definitely know that it's not an easy task at all. I do want to touch. So, your job as community and safety. Every time you say the title for that job, I'm like, ah, what is that, right? So, you talked about sort of a, the the policy aspects and how that it sort of works with sort of the engineering sort of policy aspects of things. I'm wondering, like, what is your day to day like for when when you're worrying about community and safety? Like, what does that 
mean exactly? What's your day to day like for that? Sure. So my team is a very interesting team because community and safety, first of all, is it's quite nebulous. Like most people think, oh, you're you're like a trust and safety team. You're the support teams that handle user complaints and abuse reports. And we're like, well, no, um, GitHub actually has a separate team called user policy for that mission. So community and safety exists to build tools to help maintainers grow and uh, I guess like grow sustainable and healthy communities. I think that's the shortest summary of it that I can think of. So what that means in practice is there are a lot of different features scattered all throughout GitHub where individuals can be either reactive or proactive. Um, So I'll give an example of reactive. So let's say you're arguing with someone on a GitHub issues thread and they start becoming really abusive and they start, you know, like cussing you out or just, you know, being unpleasant. So for a long time, all you could do is report that up all the way up to GitHub admins, which is good strategy. um, And that's definitely a very valuable layer to have. But the problem there is site-wide admins don't have all the context. Like they would have to maybe go back through lots and lots of previous comments and try to figure out exactly what happened, in, you know, to what led to this moment um, as part of investigating whether there's a high priority incident to respond to. A feature that my team introduced is called tiered moderation. And most of this work was done before I got here. So I'm not taking any credit for the engineering work. This credit goes to the community and safety team before I got there. So Tiered reporting means that, well, okay, if you don't report all the way up to site admins, who else can you report to? So a more logical person actually would be the maintainer, the maintainer team of an organization. Because, you know, if you've been working on an open source community for a number of years, you kind of know who the problem actors are. And you kind of know who has good intentions, but, you know, maybe struggles with written communication. So if you now give people the option to report to community maintainers, that's another layer of sort of progressive escalation, I guess, that we give to uh, community members. Community maintainers also might be in a better position to reach out to the person who's being aggressive and just find out, hey, like, what's wrong? Maybe someone is really stressed out because of this global pandemic that we're all living through. Maybe someone, you know, misinterpreted something. But we sort of give people tools to assume best intent, but, you know, take action for the safety of the community. So that's kind of reactive. But some proactive things we do are we will try to design the site in a way that encourages positive interaction. Now, if you, maybe after satellite, I'm not sure when this feature will launch, but if you go to open an issue on a repository, there will be a screen that directs you, that asks you, okay, is this a bug report? Is this a feature request? Is this just a question you have about using the app? Um, And if it's a question, it'll redirect you to somewhere else. So that helps to make the issues firehose more manageable for maintainers. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of just like (laughs) thousands of GitHub issues, but it's so, so hard to wade through. And a lot of people, I think, have come up with their own engineering solutions over the GitHub API to try to visualize issues in a more, in a way that's more manageable. So with things like that, like there's a lot of room for engineering. Um, One of the things that I've been working on lately is improving abuse reports and what else? There's a new thing that I'm working on, but I don't think I can talk about it yet because it, <laughs> we need to like go through the release channels for that. All right, all right. So maybe I'll circle back to you in a couple of weeks about that. <laughs> cool. So would your team be the team that's in charge of releasing features like the templates they have for like PRs for issues and that sort of stuff? Is it that type of stuff as well? Or is it does that sort of outside the bounds of what you work on? I feel like issue templates and PR templates are probably owned by the teams because there's a team that works on issues and a team that works on PRs. I don't mean actually creating it, but the feature that enabled that to work. 
Oh, I'm not 100% sure. I can check on that, though. There's a lot about this, what the team does and doesn't do that I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's part of the, the beauty of a brand new brand new environment, brand new team, brand new, brand new job. You're learning on the job, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about a little bit about the, the drawing lessons <laughs> that you've been, <laughs> you've been doing for the internet uh, for the last few weeks. Like what brought that about? And tell us about that. Like, what is that? What are you trying to achieve there? <laughs> <laughs> so for the last few years, I can tell you, okay, so it's kind of a funny story why I started doing sketch notes in the first place. Um, so back in 2018, maybe end of 2017, I worked at Pivotal in London. And if you were a member of the tech community in London around that time, most people know Pivotal as the office that will host anything. <laughs> 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 like we will host any meetup, we will buy you pizza, we will let you drink our beer, just say the word. And if there's a, an employee who, who can be here physically to host it, then our space and our food and drinks are yours. So a lot of my friends knew this fact and they would you know, bring their meetups um, to Pivotal and I'd be the person hosting them. So one day my friend said, hey, there's this sketchnoting community. Do you want to host them? And I said, I have no idea what that is, but that sounds great. Bring them over. We'll get pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so they came and I actually ended up attending quite a few sessions. We hosted probably three or four sessions and it was really, really cool. Yeah, I always like drew things when I was a teenager. Uh, my favorite thing to do to procrastinate doing homework was to like draw anime characters when I was growing <laughs> up. But I hadn't, you know, drawn for a very long time. And it was something that I had forgotten how much I enjoyed until I started doing the sketchnoting meetups again. So a couple months after that, in early 2018, I did a product management rotation at Pivotal. And one of the things I had to do for my job was to push out lots and lots of communication. And I found that Sometimes I would send out an email to, you know, either all of R&D or just a couple of other teams. And they would, my emails would say like, breaking changes in our API, like <laughs> be aware of this. And people would miss the email. It would go to, you know, get filtered away and they would never see it. And then a few weeks later, I would, someone would come, come to me and say, Hey, like my thing broke. And I was like, yes, I told you this is going to happen. <laughs> you just didn't read my email. So I started an experiment, which was like, I started sketchnoting my announcements instead of writing them in email. And mm. engagement rate went through the roof. Like I was having VPs respond to my emails. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't even know this guy was on this mailing list, but that's cool. So I found that that was a really like powerful way to get people to look at the things that you were saying. And I like also the frequency of people coming and saying like my thing is broken like that went down a lot right, after I started right. doing this, which was great. That was my that was my intention. That was a goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but then just for fun, I started sketchnoting and like trying to sketch along to people's conference talks. Um, I would go to industry conferences and also community conferences and pick talks that I was kind of interested in. Sit there and sketch. I started out just doing pen and paper. Eventually, I got an iPad and started doing it digitally. But I found that of all the interactions that I had at conferences, you know, like when you go to large conferences, you get kind of tired after a few days. Not every interaction is going to be positive. If you're speaking, I find that people generally tend to be nicer than, I don't know. But once in a while, if you're speaking, you know, like someone will ask a rude question or like a question that's not really a question, <laughs> things like that. And that, you know, like that, you have mixed ex mixed experiences there. But I found that when I started producing art of other people's talks, people 
universally loved that. Like mm. nobody was ever mean about a piece of <laughs> art that I created. The speaker was almost, you know, always just like so like surprised and like so excited that someone, you know, had visualized their talk. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, start, that kicked off kind of a cycle where I was like, huh, there's something here. Like if I can start off by sketching other people's talks and give them greater outreach. And actually to this day, I still get a Twitter notification every few days um, because Last, like a year and a half ago, I went to the lead developer in New York City and Tanya Riley was there speaking about being blue um, with the, mm, the idea of right. doing, you know, all the, the quote, non-technical work that right. teams need to keep running. And so I sketched that talk and published it. And every couple of days, someone finds that and retweets it again. So it just like keeps coming back. I think the talk itself is really great also. Right, um, right. But having a visual accompaniment to that talk enables someone to, you know, sort of look at it and say, oh, this looks really interesting. I now I'm going to go and invest 30 minutes and watching the the original full length talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so my intention is never to replace the information that's in the talk. It's more to give people you know a high level overview of what happened in it and help mm-hmm. them make an informed decision about whether they want to invest more time going you know digging deeper and going to watch the original. Mm-hmm. So you know like inevitably as I started producing more of this on my own, people started asking me, oh like how do you do this? I want to learn how to do this. Can you teach me? I was like, uh, <laughs> I can try. So the first time I tried to teach it was at, I think it was at Right Speak Code last year, it, like the same conference where I met Lexi. Um, so I, I ran a two hour long, it was, I think one and a half hour, two hours long. Like it was a long workshop where I broke down sketch noting into a couple different basic skills. So one of them is like being able to draw humans and being able to give them emotions Another is like sort of drawing shadow shade, like shading things 101. Mm-hmm. And all of the lessons are geared towards people who don't self-identify as artists, who people who say, I can't draw, like I, I can't <laughs> even hold a pencil. That's, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like I've gotten a lot of encouragement from a few specific people. One of them is Marlena Compton, um, who runs Appearworks. So Marlena and I, and also um, our other friend, Caitlin Gu, are teaming up to, we're running a whole conference about this in two weeks called Let's Sketch Tech. Yeah. But the other person that, you know, has really, really been such a vocal cheerleader is um, Nitya Narasimhan from Microsoft. So basically, like, anytime I put anything online, Nitya is like, instant retweet, do more of this. You're awesome. <laughs> I want to see more. <laughs> so I kind of wish that, you know, everyone could have a Nitya just in their corner, just cheering them on. Yeah, like, oh, he's always cheering to. you on. Yeah, exactly, yeah, awesome. exactly. That's awesome. I'm checking out the website right now. It's letssketchtech.com. Yes. Literally, you have you can register for, for different days. Yeah, the next one coming up in, on May 9th is uh, Telling Stories with Doodles. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can absolutely register for it. This is such a cool idea. This is a, 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 I might have to jump in on this. Yeah, please do. Yeah, because I'm like, I have a very clear understanding of the value that visuals play in communication, right? Some of my best talks, I'll have folks come come up to me and says, hey, that visual you had on this slide or that diagram or that, whatever it is, right? I could really appreciate that, right? And you can easily give them, you know, that, that sheet or that image or whatever it is, right? And, and it packs so much information because you're visually sort of representing, they say like an image with a thousand words for a reason, right? Because you can communicate mm-hmm. so much when you go beyond just text. And this is something I encourage sort of folks who are putting talks together sort of all the time, like, look, 
there are two things, two very specific things you can do to make sure like your talk, right? Beyond the content itself, your content can have value, right? But that's table stakes, right? Mm -hmm. There are two things you can do to sort of uh, make sure it's well received. One, tell stories around it. And two, use good visuals, right? And don't fill your slide with bullets and text. Nobody's going to read that stuff. Like, you know, just put everybody to sleep. Like if you have, you can tell stories and you can sort of uh, have visuals around things. Um, and the illustrations, This that's sort of the next level I want to get to. Like I want to I wanna have illustrations in my talk. I want to have, I want to draw some cats like you're teaching people <laughs> to do. You know, like, yeah, that, cause I think these things, you know, they, they do make for a, a more engaging and more fun experience. And that that proof you've got by basically, by by starting to, to add these things, sprinkle these things in, in your announcements, you know, basically, and you saw the effect, right? People were reading them, they were engaged, and and it solved the problem, right? So I think this is like absolutely, definitely worth it. So for all those listening, do check it out. It's letsketchtech.com. Yeah, I, I definitely will be checking this out myself because I need some help because my doodles are terrible. <laughs> the conference is also uh, kid friendly. So if any of your nice. kids wanted to come, John's daughter might be too young. <laughs> A little bit too young. <laughs> So when you're drawing, do you also find that, because like you do ones about specific topics. So when you're doing that, do you find that it forces you to think about how to explain the topic from a different perspective? Because like when you're writing up a blog post or something, you like kind of have the world, you can go on as long as you want. And like with a single page sketch, I assume that that limits you and forces you to think more creatively about how to present this material. Yeah, definitely. I've been really inspired by seeing Julia Evans's work over the years. And one thing that Julia has spoken about is the most difficult, or I don't know if it's the most difficult for her, but um, she has called out that it's very, very challenging to distill a complex concept into something that'll fit a tiny space. Because, you don't, you know, when you're making these visuals, the point is not to capture everything. You want to capture just enough and then complement it with something visual. So that, that part is, is definitely tricky. Um, that takes a lot of practice. And I would say, like, I still sometimes err on the side of being too wordy. I think that's hard to break, though. Like I've I've heard several people state that it's harder to write something that actually gets the point across in fewer words than it is in more words, like for almost everything. And I imagine when you're drawing and doing stuff like that with it, it's even harder because you're, you know, you're trying to toss the visuals in there. You want it all to make sense, but you also yeah. want to like, you know, not just go on forever. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I do pretty often, especially if I'm, you know, making a drawing to sort of force myself to learn about something new, um, I get people who are who know more about it to review my work. Um, or I just straight up partner up with someone who knows the subject matter really deeply. Um, like I have one drawing about the raft consensus algorithm. Mm -hmm. What else do you do on a Saturday afternoon? <laughs> Draw the raft consensus algorithm. But I partnered up with my friend Matt who lives in London and he, you know, like is a distributed systems pro. Um, he knows a lot about that. And so I was like, all right, I'll take care of the visuals. Um, let's pair on this. Let, let's jump on a call. We'll, we'll, we'll do version one together. And then I'm going to send you over the final version. You literally, you just tell me if I've captured anything inaccurately. That's pretty cool. It also seems like you have a newsletter going on. Are you actively like publishing content where I should sign up for? Where do I sign up? <laughs> uh, I don't really, it's not really a newsletter the way that some people use it to sort of like talk out loud. Um, okay. I am trying to only use that newsletter to blast out announcements about upcoming workshops and events that I'm taking part in. Um, uh, cool. that are mostly free. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence about whether I should send a blast to everyone to tell them to buy tickets for the conference. <laughs> um, but I've been kind of lazy about it lately because I've just been kind of like low on headspace with, you know, mm -hmm. pandemic and everything. Right, right. But my intention is to run more 
free workshops at a regular cadence. I initially started off saying like, I'm going to do this twice a week. And then I was like, oh God, it's so much work to like set up an event, right? And do the marketing and everything. So I just kind of stopped doing that. But I recently started working with the Microsoft Reactor team, which has actually been fantastic. We did a workshop this past Saturday and they were just so great. It was This was, of course, a Nitya uh, connection, um, <laughs> but they handled the event setup on Meetup in like three different reactors. And at one point we had like 105 people watching the stream or something, which is like really, really wild. Wow. Like I had no <laughs> idea that many people wanted to learn how to um, do text sketch noting. Yeah, yeah. So that was awesome. So if I do feature events, it will probably like the more um, put together ones will probably with be in collaboration with the reactor team which I'm pretty stoked about. That is pretty cool. It's definitely one of those things where you're like, you, you look at it like, yeah, this is kind of cool. And, and, you know, obviously because, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I saw that. I saw some of your retweets and you talking about the, the sketching stuff. I was like, this is kind of cool. Here's another person in the industry that I respect and, and they they have a hobby. <laughs> I could use a hobby. <laughs> I could use a hobby too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is awesome. Do keep doing it. I, I do think, especially in, in this season that we're in now where everybody's sort of, a, a, you know, low in headspace, like you mentioned, um, something like this where, where it just kind of takes your mind off of things is, is, I think, absolutely valuable. And thank you for doing it. And I hope you will keep on doing it. Yeah. So, John, anything else we, wanna, we don't want to touch on before we ask Denise to drop her unpopular opinion? Ooh, Denise, did you prepare an unpopular opinion? I'll think of one right now. <laughs> Judging by the look on your face. <laughs> Judging by the surprise right look on you. Okay, good, good. Okay, I have one. Oh, John, do you have the music for Unpopular Opinion? I do. Uh, before I play it, Denise, it doesn't have to be tech-related specifically. I mean, it's kind of anything you want. So okay. don't stress yourself out. <laughs> you ready okay. for music, Johnny? Hit me. My unpopular opinion is that buying and selling turnips in Animal Crossing is overrated. Ooh. Okay. (laughs) Because I think Animal Crossing is an entire game about the journey. And grinding bells is part of the journey. So if you, you know, sell a bunch of turnips for whatever price, you know, they peak at, then I think that, I don't know, I, I think that kind of... It fast tracks you past the parts of the game that I think are fun. Ah, okay, okay. That's good. First of all, I was going to ask, what, what is Animal Crossing? And you said <laughs> it was a game. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> I say, Johnny and I are both like, we don't play, like, I don't play this game, but I've heard that it's a lot of farming. Like, as, <laughs> not, like not like farming, like like agricultural farming isn't farming isn't like doing repetitive tasks. Yes. A lot. Yeah. There also is agricultural farming, though. Well, a you little can bit of grow both flowers that. and trees. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's a game that came out on Nintendo Switch, and basically, almost all of my friends are playing it. Um, I only got it a few days ago because I left my Switch in Toronto, and <laughs> I'm in New Jersey now, so I had to actually order a new Switch to play it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It means that much yeah. to you, huh? <laughs> I know. I was desperate. I was like, okay, I can't handle this FOMO of seeing everyone else's <laughs> islands on Twitter anymore. I'm just going to just gonna wow. 
buy another one. <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay, well, for those who yeah. do play Animal Crossing, yeah, this will either anger them or they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think you could make the argument about generally about a lot of other games, though. Like, I feel like people are impatient when it comes to games where there's some effort you have to put in to get someplace. Mm-hmm. And, like, they'll, they'll immediately take the shortcut of however they can get to the end, sort of. And then they miss that experience along the way. It's the same with, when I was younger, I played Diablo 2 a lot. And they had, like, ways you could just mod your files and give yourself all the gear in the game. But mm-hmm. then as soon as you did that, mm-hmm. you're like, well, I don't really want to play anymore because it's not fun now that I have everything. And you realize yeah, exactly. very quickly that, like, the journey is the enjoying part of the game. It's not actually the end result. I agree with that. I can agree with that because I have played the Diablo. I've played the original Diablo 2 and everything really in the Diablo series from Blizzard. So I can definitely relate to that. Yes. Yes, I All can right. relate. Johnny. Yes. If you tell me that the mobile game is good, that's like an unpopular opinion that'll hold you over for like two months. Wait, there is a mobile <laughs> There's game? There's a mobile game. <laughs> okay, a mobile well, Diablo? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there really? is. Because at one point they were supposed to be announcing, I think, Diablo 4, and they announced Diablo the mobile game, and everybody got really, really mad. Oh, yes, really? I think. Yeah. This rings a bell. I it was like at Blizz, whatever their conference is, not that long ago. Mm. Maybe a year ago, I don't know. But basically they, they had this big thing like, oh, there's a Diablo announcement, and everybody thought it was going to be Diablo 4, and it was not. <laughs> They're like, we have it for mobile. And everybody's like, what are you doing? What, you, what is this nonsense? <laughs> you know, like, it wasn't idiomatic. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, it wasn't something the community was familiar with, you know. So. Nah, it's, it's, <laughs> and apparently video game fans are, are very vocal about their unhappiness. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I think that might get me in trouble. But uh, yeah, it's, it's they're a very vocal, vocal group. Um, hey, you know, to, to each their own. Awesome. So this was fun having you, Denise. Uh, I, you know, like I said before, I really wanted to sort of uh, um, introduce you to the broader Go community because uh, I think you're doing a lot of fun and cool stuff. And and the role you're playing, I think, suits you quite well in your gig. And uh, yeah, we didn't even talk about some of the teaching stuff that you you do. You help out with uh, GoBridge as well and all that stuff. And I'm sure folks will find out uh, more about that when they look you up. Um, yeah, I definitely want to thank you for coming on the show. And uh, this has been uh, fun. And I hope we can do it again. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. We appreciate your time and your attention. If Go Time has helped you be a better gopher, please do tell your friends. Word of mouth is the number one way people hear about podcasts, so we appreciate every shout out, every tweet, every mention on Slack, Reddit, Hacker News, all of it. You know what else is cool? Responses and feedback to things said on the show. Write it down, record a response on your podcast, turn it into a conference talk, and if you do, make sure we know about it so we can help amplify. This episode was hosted by Johnny Borsico and John Calhoun. Thanks again to our special guest, Denise Yu. Connect with her at deniseyu.io. That's D-E-N-I-S-U-Y-U dot I-O. Sponsoring GoTime is an excellent way to tell your story authentically. It's so effective, in fact, I bet you already know that we're brought to you by Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Learn more at changelog.com slash sponsor. We would love to work with you. Thanks for the awesome beats, BMC. That's all for now. Databases next week.
I got to get myself a podcasting setup like the two of you have. <laughs> Apparently, if you join the Go Time podcast and do it every week, they just send you a mic. Hey, so it's really easy to do. Idea. You just have to show up every Tuesday. <laughs> That's right. Every Tuesday at three o'clock Eastern time. It's actually not every Tuesday. If we get enough hosts, then we can sometimes take vacations. Every Tuesday for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know we, you can do like matt every now and then you take you know you take a break matt took a break today uh, so you know it, it's it's all good 